0: It's St Patrick's Day, and bad Irish accents aside, it is a fantastic, excellent day to celebrate. Well, it's almost St Patrick's Day, I should say. March seventeenth is the day of St Patrick. St Patrick was a really important man, obviously for Ireland, but for the Catholic faith as a whole, he really helped to root out some heresies. Uh, we have Lewis here to talk to us a little bit more about St Patrick's.
1: Okay, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do a an Irish accent, because I don't think anyone would understand. Um, And I think my Irish accent sounds more Scottish, to be honest. It is believed, apparently, that St. Patrick was born in the 5th century uh, in Britain to Roman parents uh, when he was 16. This is an interesting fact. Uh, He was captured by pirates and taken to Ireland. And there he was sold as a slave. His owner sent him to tend his flocks of sheep on the mountains. Patrick had very little food and clothing yet he took good care of the animals in the rain, snow and ice. Patrick was so lowly on the hillside that he turned often in prayer to Jesus and his mother Mary. His wife was hard and unfair, but Patrick's trust in God grew stronger all the time. Six years later, when he escaped from Ireland, Patrick decided to, be- to become a priest. After years of study and preparation, he was ordained. After some time, he was made a bishop. And what Patrick wanted more than anything else was to return to Ireland and bring the light of faith in Jesus to the Irish people. It was while St. Celestine I was Pope that Patrick went back to Ireland. How happy he was to bring the good news of the true God to the people who once had held him a slave. Right from the start, Patrick suffered much. His relatives and friends wanted him to quit before the people of Ireland killed him. Yet Patrick kept on preaching about Jesus. He travelled from one village to another, he seldom rested, and he performed great penances for those people whom he loved so much. Before he died, the whole nation of Ireland was Christian. In spite of his great success, St. Patrick never grew proud. He called himself a poor sinner and gave all the praises to God. In his book, Patrick wrote about his work of spreading the faith among the Irish, and he died in 461.
0: He was truly a very important man.
2: So, Lewis... Uh, it was really interesting hearing about Saint Pat's. And I think um t- to finish off your little biography, I have a little bit of a joke for you.
1: I'm I'm all is, Megan.
2: Alright. All so knock knock. Who's there? Irish. Irish who? Irish you a happy Saint Patrick's Day. <laughs> so today I am sitting with our very special guest, uh Deacon Sam French, who is currently Serving his seminary period at the Holy Name Runga, so today we're going to learn a little bit more about this very charismatic deacon.
3: <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so that's uh, that's me, deacon. Se- it's um, I've technically finished seminary, but oh. I'm I'm am uh, I'm a deacon serving in the parish. But yeah,
2: all right, let's. Should we no, redo no, this no. one? I,
3: let's just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> it's, we're, we're here to learn.
2: Yes, yeah, so I'm learning from the get-go, right? But um, one thing I'd love to learn first is um, just a little bit more about yourself and your journey in the Catholic faith.
3: Okay, I'll break those into two questions. Sure. I'll do about, about myself and then the Catholic journey. Um, as I said before, the only thing I'm an expert in is my own life story. So it's uh, I'll, I'll give you a bit of a rundown. So Deacon Sam French... Is the name. <laughs> Twenty-eight years old, and I'm from a big Catholic family. So I've got five brothers and one sister. Wow. Um a fun fact about that is my younger brother Matt, who's only a year two years younger than me, 26, he joined the seminary uh last week or two <gasps> a week and a half ago.
2: Wow, congrats. Yeah. Definitely following in his big bros <laughs> footsteps.
3: Yes, he would hate to hear that, but uh that's exactly what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> um so we grew up on the central coast, uh, more specifically Woi Woi is where we're from. Um, I like to say you can take the boy out of the Woi, but you can't take the Woi out of the boy. Uh, <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's, if I was to give you some, uh, I suppose, fun facts about who I am, I think the thing that interests people the most is my interesting and checkered job history. Um, I only had relatively few years between high school and, joining the seminary, but I did quite a number of different things in that time. Uh, I worked as a, uh, checkout chick at a $2 store called super dollar. Uh, then I worked for a research company, basically calling up, uh, uh, guys who had bought big semi-trailers and, and I'd say, you know, how's the comfort in the cabin and, uh, how's the engine performance and, you know, do you have any feedback to give the supplier? So, uh, that was a, extraordinarily boring job <laughs> <laughs> um i sold advertisement for a construction magazine i was the church cleaner i was the youth minister in my parish of woi woi saint john the baptist and i worked at Specsavers as an optical assistant but the one that captures most people's attention is that i was an undertaker's assistant so a wow. funeral director's assistant um so I saw my first dead body when I was 18 years old. So <laughs>
1: when, wow. when
3: he whipped open the freezer and there she was, Oh my gosh. <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, it's a, it kind of captures people's attention, but it was a, um, yeah, pretty crazy job history.
2: Yeah. Wow.
3: Uh Catholic faith, <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> probably, from from
3: <laughs> probably more, uh, appropriate than, than all that stuff. Um, I was born a cradle Catholic, so you know, from from day dot, uh, being raised in my family, I've, my, some of my earliest memories are of being in the church and and going to mass. Um, my parents, when I was very young, joined a charismatic Catholic community called the Disciples of Jesus. So that was very much a um, similar to we were talking about Antioch earlier, similar in a way to to Antioch. Very kind of lively music. Um, Very, and like the members of the community would live in close proximity and they would have kind of prayer meetings once or twice a week. So it was very uh, kind of full on. And that was where I met a lot of my um, kind of friends and like social connections and everything like that. Um, My other memories of growing up was going to mass, went to Catholic schools, St. John the Baptist Catholic School, um, mum taking us to confession once a month. Oh, so wow. before we kind of even knew what we were doing, like we, we got really used to this sacrament of confession. So that became very useful later in life. Um, praying the rosary every night as well. So it was, um, some might say it was intense, but for me it just felt very normal growing up in, in that kind of um, Catholic setting. So it's, um, yeah, so going from like the charismatic side, then I went to university and I became a lot more interested in questions of my own faith and I wanted to research it deeper. So I actually started studying a theology degree. And then I met some some people that were a lot more traditionally minded. So like they were um, kind of like exclusive Latin mass people. So they would go oh, to, wow. the, yeah, to the mass in Latin. And I was invited over to um, Maternal Heart Church in Lewisham for a mass one Sunday. And I walked in and the the scholar or like the choir there was singing like this three-part polyphony and like Gregorian chant throughout all of mass and it was just stunningly beautiful and I felt myself very drawn into that I suppose now I'm somewhere between those two arms of the church I suppose like the charismatic spirit-filled personal relationship with Jesus side and um, the more traditional expression as well so um, yeah I, I don't really have a firm home in either of those camps and hopefully it means I'm Somewhat balanced,
2: yeah. So no, I think it's it's really good that you're able to get a more well-rounded approach to your faith. Um, I'm glad <laughs> to hear that your experiences have really shaped you in that way. The community that you're part of really, really does shape your overall experience.
3: For sure. Um, one such community was the seminary. I probably should mention that that was like <laughs> six years of my life. Well, actually, no. It's meant to be about six or seven years of your life. I did it. I was in and out with it f- about four and a half years. Um, but the reason for that was because of that theology degree I mentioned. I kind of had come in having done a bit of study, but I think one of the best things about the seminary is it teaches you to pray. It teaches you to have a, a good relationship with God, but you're also in a community of faith where everyone believes as you believe um, and everyone supports each other in that Christian mission and that, um, that search for um, fulfilling your vocation, what God's called uh, each and every one of us to do so um, I would say the seminary is probably the most intense but most formative community I've been a part of um, and I think it's it's designed to be that way to kind of build you up as a person not only spiritually but humanly like in all your virtues um, what are the other um, psychologically so you, you know you're healthy and kind of in, of mind um, and pastorally the way that you deal with people, the way that you interact, and bring people on the journey with you. So, like, it's actually designed around those four pillars or dimensions. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Wow. It does sound like a very, a very intense but <laughs> rewarding experience. It
3: is challenging but rewarding. <laughs> is the uh, is the throwaway line. Yeah.
2: Yes. No. Um, does there happen to be any experience of yours um, in the seminary that you felt has really stuck with you?
3: Without a doubt, um, in the first year you begin uh, doing retreats and one part of the spiritual retreats that you do is this rule of silence. So the first retreat that you do that my brother would have just finished is a five day silent retreat. So, you know, you're, um, you're given spiritual texts. You have a spiritual director who you speak with for maybe an hour a day or something like that. And, but the rest of the time is spent in silence, reading scripture, prayer, and just having one-on-one time with God. Um, and so that sticks with you, but the silence is so strict that it's, they also talk about a thing called silence of the eyes. So like silence when you walk, yeah, exactly. When you walk past people in the hallway, you look away. So it starts out as a five day retreat. And at the end, it's a 30 day retreat. 30 days
2: of silence. 30
3: day silent retreat. It's called, um, this, uh, I mentioned it before the podcast. It's the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola. And, um and for 30 days, I was praying, God, are you asking me to be a priest? And um, on that retreat, I got a, in prayer, I received a resounding yes. So it was this this moment of of basically certainty that I was being called to the vocation of priesthood.
2: Wow. Uh, wow. Well, um- I'm happy that it resulted in such a wonderful epiphany, but I'm gonna tell you now how so much more respect for the priests and deacons. I mean, thirty days of silence. I can't even go ten minutes without <laughs> yeah. talking. It's uh, quite, so. That's
3: the nature of our age, I suppose, but it's um it does help in your first year. They take your phones away from you.
2: Wow. So I guess um in the lead up to becoming a priest and just sort of reflecting on your time as a deacon. Uh what's an aspect of the job that you've really enjoyed and is there maybe some sort of interesting part about being a deacon that others may not know okay. about?
3: Yep. Um, the diaconate does come with its challenges because you know people when you meet people for the first time as a deacon you're kind of like in that in that mode so they see they see the diaconate uh, or they see the collar before they see the person in a sense and so it mm-hmm. can be somewhat hard to establish new relationships so that's like a something that comes along with the, you know, just the life of being an ordained minister, I suppose. Um, but I think my favourite part would have to be preaching. I, I do, after every homily, I feel, uh, I feel like I'm in the right place. I feel like I'm doing the right thing. So that's probably my favourite part about being a deacon would be preaching. Uh, I get so nervous writing my homilies. So it's certainly not of my own power, but really the Holy Spirit, I think, at work. Um, in terms of interesting facts about the diaconate, it's one of those things that unless you've got a deacon in your parish, a lot of, a lot of people don't know really anything about what, what it, does it mean to be a, a deacon or part of the, um, the diaconate, you know, have received, um, that, that ordination.
2: Confession time <laughs> for the longest time before I, I, I met Deacon Sam, I just thought he was like an older altar server and I was like, oh what who is this uh redhead altar server? Um he's been there like consistently every week and I didn't really realise that there was such a role as a deacon until um I actually ended up being introduced to you and you mentioned your name was Deacon Sam. And I was like, ooh, what is okay. this what is this new role? Yeah, so. there you
4: go.
3: Okay. Well that's awesome. So that that means, you know, you can kind of be the representative on behalf of those people who are interested. Um, I suppose the the difference you would have seen while I was up there is I'd be wearing all the shiny vestments that matched the color of the priest. Um, but as a, and in the seminary, actually, you know, the diaconate would sometimes be referred to as like, you're a super server. There's a difference between the permanent diaconate and what I am, which is a transitional diaconate. Mm. Um, the permanent diaconate, you can be ordained a deacon as a married man with children um, as a transitional deacon, uh, I just basically is an acknowledgement that I'm on my way through the diaconate on the way to priesthood. Mm. So it's kind of like a stage on the way, another step along the path towards priesthood.
2: Yeah, kind um, of like an intern priest.
3: Exactly, and in, in some sense, you know, you've got you still got your training wheels on, but there are some very distinct differences, and that is you said before confession time. One of the distinctions is a deacon can't hear confessions whereas a a priest can. Um, The deacon can serve at Mass, but he can't consecrate the Eucharist. He can't turn the bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus.
2: So I guess um, going to one of your favourite parts of the Catholic faith, which is saints, Um, I do know that there is a saint that you're particularly passionate about, uh, which is John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. So um, could you tell me a little bit about John the Baptist and maybe – a key message that we can take from his teachings in life.
3: Okay. I I do, I have a great love of John the Baptist and at every opportunity, whenever he rocks up in, in the um, readings at Mass, I'll uh, try and preach strongly on him. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Felix the Cat. Uh, oh, yes. It's, a, it's an old school cartoon. It used to be my favourite growing up. And when I was reading through a list of saint names, I saw Felix and I said to mum, mom, I want to be, I want to take Felix as my confirmation name. And she said, no, you can't have Felix because you're just doing that to name yourself after the cat. (laughs) (laughs) And then she said, you have to choose another saint. Uh, And so the only other saint I knew was St. John the Baptist at that age. You know, I was really, (laughs) I was really young. So um, that's kind of where my interest began. Uh, But kind of like later in life, uh, what drew me to him was just the quirky nature of St. John the Baptist. He's like a real, uh, He's a guy on the outside um, and has all of these interest, like all of this interesting stuff going on in his life. Um, and humility is the other thing about him. He's got a famous quote from the scriptures: "He must increase, I must decrease," uh, and he's referring there to his cousin Jesus. You know, Jesus must take the lead, and I must kind of fade into the background. And I think that's a it's a really important thing for anyone who's not only an ordained minister or in religious life, but anyone who's a leader and a Christian leader at that, is to put Christ first and not to make everything about you, but to be about the mission to which you've been called. Mm-hmm. And I think John the Baptist embodies that in a striking way.
2: Yeah, wow. I can definitely see why why you like John the Baptist so much. And I think in particular in today's society, I think taking on that sort of fearless role in I guess, uh, championing your faith, even though it may not be something that's very popular at the moment, is a message that I definitely will think more about. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but overall, um, really, really interesting to hear about your life and experiences. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to um, sit with me today.
3: It's been my great pleasure and privilege, Megan. Thank you for having me on here.
2: Thank you as well.
5: Listener, today we'll be talking about a very significant story in the book of Genesis, The Binding of Isaac. For those who are familiar with the story, it discusses how Abraham nearly sacrificed his own son, Isaac. But today we're going to look at the story from a slightly different perspective. Thankfully, we have two very special guests who have (laughs) sacrificed some of their time to be with us here this evening. Alex, Olivia, how are you both?
4: We're good. Thank yeah. you for having us. Yep, thanks for having us. And nice joke, by the way, when you said sacrifice their time.
5: <laughs> Thank you very much, Alex. That uh, that means a lot, you saying that. So, guys, I think I might just hand it over to you guys. You have a lot to uh, lot to tell us all. I, I know I've heard snippets and I'm very keen to hear and I'm sure everyone else is, so please take it away.
4: Right, Olivia, you go first. Okay, so we begin with thinking about, so we know there's a, important and sacred meaning behind the story but we think about it from Isaac's point of view what does he think and how does he feel when his father Abraham brings him up the mountain and ties him down on a block of stone and tries to kill him he must have been very scared going but he guess what he didn't complain so now we're just going to continue on what He must have been thinking. He must have been absolutely terrified, shaking. But Isaac probably knew that his father had a reason for doing what seemed crazy. But thankfully for Isaac, an angel came down and told Abraham that God realized Abraham was loyal and trustworthy and that he didn't have to kill Isaac anymore. And what a relief for Isaac when they killed a ram that was tangled in the bushes instead. But what was Isaac thinking on the way home? He must have been stressed and relieved at the same time as they were going back down the mountains home. And what do you think he said to Sarah, his mother, when he got home? Mom, Dad tried to kill me today up on the mountain. How do you think Sarah felt? Was she bewildered or did she expect something like that? Who knows what she thought? If I was Isaac, I would have just tried my best not to get my dad into trouble because I didn't want my mum to be yelling at him. If I was Sarah, when Isaac broke the news to me, I would have been absolutely terrified and immediately confronted Abraham about he tried to kill my one and only firstborn son. So that would have been interesting if I was Sarah.
0: I have a pretty strong memory from when I was a kid of seeing someone get uh, pooed on by a bird. Uh, and I thought it was obviously quite a tragic event. However, somebody told me something a bit really funny, that apparently being pooed on by a bird was actually good luck. Oh. So, I didn't, again, it didn't seem like good luck. I wouldn't aim for that to be my number one goal. I wouldn't be uh, thanking the heavens that I got pooed on by a bird. But there are actually a lot of really strange lucky things. Like a rabbit's foot, for example... That's the rabbit isn't having a great time with that, but apparently very lucky. There are some really unusual, lucky types of things.
2: Interesting. Interesting. You mentioned that. Uh, One of the things that I always found myself looking for when I was a kid were those mystical four leaf clovers. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do know what
0: you're talking about. Very nice segue into St. Patrick's as well.
2: Yes, Exactly. So thinking about St. Pat's made me think about my days running around, feeling disappointed that I only saw those three leaf clovers. Mm. But I guess one thing I always thought about is why was I looking for a four leaf clover? What's that special about it? It's just a
0: leaf, right? What's What's the difference between three and five and four leafs anyway?
2: Exactly. That's what I thought at first as well. But As I took a little bit more of a deeper look at the whole thing around these clovers, I found out that there's much more to it than you think. You know what? You were thinking that it's pretty hard to find a four-leaf clover. Do you happen to know why it is so statistically unlikely?
0: Uh, Something to do with the Fibonacci sequence I heard.
2: Oh, interesting.
0: Yeah. So the Fibonacci sequence, to sort of jump in, it's this idea that, this is math talk, Part of the Dan's a
2: maths teacher, by the way, so everything he says, one hundred percent true.
0: <laughs> Never ever been wrong. Just ask my students; they wouldn't complain. <laughs> uh, so Fibonacci sequence is the idea that in nature, sort of, some patterns exist naturally, and you so you see them over time. So the idea is it's one, one, two, three, five, eight. Whereas uh, things naturally tend to form in those patterns. So things tend to form with like one leaf or two leaves or three leaves or eight leaves, ignoring the five for a second. Uh, and so that's why one of the reasons why four-leaf clovers seem to be so rare. As to why that happens, I'm sure people much smarter than me know, but something to look up.
2: Yes, something to look up. And if any of you guys know the answer, please, please let us know. But I mean, um, numbers aside, do you happen to know why it is that the four-leaf clover is considered lucky?
0: Why is the four-leaf clover lucky?
2: So the reason it's considered lucky is because each of the four leaves symbolize the four aspects of good luck, which is faith, hope, love, and luck for the finder. So, I mean, if you are feeling lucky today, Dan, I reckon today's your day to go and find that four-leaf clover and hopefully you find one, courtesy of St. Pat's Day.
0: Hopefully I do find it, yeah. Do you know why St. Patrick's Day is... Uh, do you know, like, why it's linked to the four-leaf clover? Because it's weird, right?
2: Oh, no, I actually don't know. Why is that? Well,
0: the four-leaf clover was used in Ireland, and I, I might be butchering the history a bit, and I do apologise, uh, as, like, a symbol to show, like, Irish independence and Irish pride during times where it was occupied. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why the green colour is so uh, well linked with St. Patrick's. It's really interesting that St. Patrick's colour, although we see it green... Was actually blue, like he's it, there was like a Saint Patrick's blue color that was linked to him before. And,
2: oh, why did that change?
0: Uh yeah. So green is very uh, is like we said. It's so green is linked to the idea of Irish independence and Irish pride, and it's just a a color you see a lot in Ireland. Uh, and so it is very much linked to the idea of having an Irish roots and Irish heritage. Uh, the leaf, the clover part, is actually quite interesting. St. Patrick actually used clovers, not a four leaf, but a three leaf, more more likely to find them, to actually explain the nature of God, which was pretty cool. So,
2: oh, that's, that's neat. I didn't know that at all. Hey.
0: Yeah. So it's, uh, (laughs) so, so God is, uh, God's a bit weird because he's, uh, God's three in one, which is uh, pretty, it's like Neapolitan ice cream. God is one thing, but he's three simultaneously.
2: It's like three plus flavors in one tub, right? Exactly.
0: God is God is the Father, he's the Son and the Holy Spirit, but he's also God. And so that's pretty hard to explain to people in Ireland, especially when they weren't Christian at the time. And so he used the leaf to go, hey, how many leaves do I have here? Three. And they would go three. No, it's one, but it's three, but it's one, but it's three,
2: oh, but it's both. Mind three blown. In one.
0: Mind blown. And so... Finding a four leaf clover might be very lucky to give you a five leaf might give you all that wealth and stuff, but three allows us to find God, which I think is the best gift of all. And so maybe a three leaf clover really is the luckiest. Hey, Bernie, I have a joke for you that I found the other day and that you have to try and figure out this joke slash riddle. Okay. So there was this man who was a, uh, he was a a very famous, uh, like conductor. So he worked in the orchestra. He was the lead guy, uh, in the orchestra. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he was very famous because he was, quite, but he was not very good at the job actually. Uh, he he was related to Mozart. He had the same last name, you know. It's not Picasso, is it? It's it Picasso. It was Picasso related to Mozart. No, that was actually the problem because you see, he was conducting with a with a paintbrush, and he was really bad. He was really bad at it, and so eventually one day he he was flicking around too much paint, and it got in someone's uh, it got in someone's mouth, and they uh they choked and they died. It was really quite sad, and so he was uh he was on the he was on the. Thing for manslaughter. Anyway, he ran away. Big, big thing. Uh, it was a big problem. Anyway, they arrested him. They locked him up. They said, "You, you know, you're no good. You're you're on death row. We've had enough of you. You're, you're terrible." Um serious. Yeah, it's quite serious. Um, but yeah, and yeah, because all the all, the only thing was he was bad at his bad at his job, and it was being thrown like thrown in jail for being bad at his job. Anyway, I'm he's on he's on death row, and uh, he goes through his normal time, and he keeps on trying to you know get music happening, but he's really really bad at it. Um, and eventually he goes into the electric chair and they, they strap him down uh, and they, they turn it on. And nothing happens. How does he survive?
2: <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of something really creative, but I can't. Go on, tell me, how did he survive?
0: Audience, pause the podcast now if you'd like to answer the question. Welcome back. <laughs> You see, the problem is it was an electric chair execution. And as we know, our musician was a really bad conductor.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. Listener, today we have a very (laughs) special guest, Joan Sally. (laughs) Welcome, Joan.
6: Thank you for coming. Thanks, Jack. Thank you for having me. It's really good to be here.
5: Pleasures all mine. <laughs> um, so, for those of you in the parish who don't know, Joan, Joan is, of course, the chairperson of the PPC. Very prestigious role. Oh, I wouldn't uh, say that. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know <laughs> chair, chairperson <laughs> chairperson. And then the PPC, of course, being the, the parish partial council. I mean, if you if you have any position in a council. I know that is whoa, whoa. That is very impressive, it's Jack. You're
6: kidding me. <laughs> oh Please. goodness. Okay.
5: Anyhow, so Joan, we'll get stuck in as sure. the chairperson of the PPC. Yeah. You say it, it, it's it's not that much, but what is it, what does the role entail?
6: Okay, so so I guess the first thing is that you know I have to first of all bring the whole of the PPC right. So the Parish Pastoral Council is a group of people, right? So that group of people are on there because they have discerned or they have been nominated, and they're on there in that council to help the parish priest to really be a you know a, a sort of a guidance for the priest to help him um, think through what the parish needs are, particularly from a pastoral perspective and then, you know, support him in the strategies that are put in place, so the plans and strategies that are put in place for the parish. And I guess in order to run that on an administrative level, you need some of those elements in a group, such as a chairperson, such as a secretary, and these roles are there that sort of then cycle through the group. And this happens to be my period as a tenure for the chairperson in the PPC. I actually used to be a secretary when Gary was there as the chairperson of the PPC. So Gary Leary, I was with him for quite a while. So that's what we do. Yeah. Okay. Okay.
5: So you you were saying that the PPC is there to support the priest. Is that the entire role of the PPC? Yeah. To support well. The priest?
6: Yeah. Well, it's not. It's not entirely to you know just support the priest. We're there as a conduit for the parish, right? So if there are parishioners who want to uh, have access to the priest and to the PPC. They can do it through the members of the parish pastoral council. Right. So, you know, we're there as a voice for the parish, as as well as um, sort of a govern governance uh, council for for the parish, and you know, supporting the priest to put the plans in place that we come, you know, come up with. Um, and again, that's always with the input of the parishioners, you know, because we're all a one big family. So yeah, very
5: nice. So, so I know at least when, when I receive my uh, my council newsletter, this being the sort of the local council, which I think it uh, Parramatta, yeah, <laughs> yeah. When I'm Parramatta council. There's always yes. you know the newsletter that comes in, and they'll yeah. tell you you know the exciting plans for the coming year. Sometimes those plans don't come to fruition, but yeah. uh, more often than not, they do. And Joan, I'm just wondering, it's the start of 2021, what are, the, what are the PPC's plans for the coming year? Do you have a plan?
6: Yeah, I mean, look, that's, that's a really good question. So, as I said, you know, a big part of what we do is planning. So, you know, we've spent quite a bit of time over the last 12 to 18 months just on the planning process to get us through that next phase, three to five years, look ahead. So Father Peter was obviously very instrumental in in that, as was the whole of the Parish Pastoral Council. So we spent quite a bit of time getting input from the parish and then putting together, you know, what have we done really well in the past, what do we need to do in the future based on the needs of our community, right? So we have come up with a plan. And uh, you know, I'm happy to say that it's now been approved, and you know, we've socialised it with the parishioners, and and you you I'm sure are fully aware of it, right? Um. Jack, <laughs> you've heard yes, about it, of
5: course, Jones. <laughs> when we've course.
6: socialized it at the masses and yes, so on, of yes, course, <laughs> yes,
5: of course, of yes, yes, of of course. Of, but f- for those who, let's say, haven't heard, not me, because I have one hundred percent been paying attention. <laughs> but for those who haven't yes. listened, perhaps you know they've just missed out on you know the the mass where you spoke. What what is what is the plan?
6: Sure, so. Um, What we've tried to do is to keep it very simple so that, you know, we almost can talk about it as an elevator speech, right? So if if somebody asked, you know, what are we doing this year, then we should be able to just rattle it off in 30 seconds, right? So basically there's five pillars that we're going to look at and they are obviously the big one is connecting, right? So with the COVID, you know, we've not been able to connect face-to-face with all of our parishioners and our bigger family, and we recognize that connection is going to be really important one because we need to build those relationships. And, you know, the greatest strategy and plan and aim for us as a parish is to build the missionary discipleship, which is that personal relationship with Jesus, right, and then being able to share that with others. So what we want to do is to really build that connection with each other. So that's one of our first pillars. The other one is how do we improve service you know so serving each other we've got another pillar which is around worship so what does that look like what does that mean how do we grow in that worship space then we have another pillar which is around growing so you know how do we grow spiritually and formation and so on and then finally there's give which is you know this financial uh, giving to support our parishes as we grow so that's basically the five pillars that we're looking at in the next three to five years. Yeah.
5: So in your executive position in the parish partial council, I expect yeah. you have a, a very a very vast view of the parish, a bird's eye view of the parish. And you know you've you've been at the parish how long have you been at the parish, Jane?
6: <laughs> so um I actually joined um beginning of twenty sixteen. Beginning of twenty sixteen. Yeah. So this is I've done five years. It's going into my sixth year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that's about right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I've been there for that long. Five years. Oh, okay. Well five years.
5: Well, Joan, over the five years that you've been part of this parish and and the duration of time that you've been in this executive position, I've just been wondering what are some of the strengths of the Epping and Carlingford parish in your eyes?
6: So I think that, you know, the, the parish has grown over these years, particularly with the emphasis that, you know, Father Peter has had. And and also just the community spirit that we have as a parish, right? If you look at some of the bigger events that have happened, it's always been that, you know, community spirit. And people, that's the first thing they'll mention. You know, you, you get to know people and they're there to, to help you if you're in need. You know They're there to build friendships and relationships and so on. So I think that's a really big strength. The other thing is, obviously, if I look at the parish pastoral council, I think it's, it's really a strong council, and that's really important for any parish to have, um, not because I'm on it, but because there's some really good people on it, You know, and there are good leadership within that uh, council and then look at our programs in the parish. You know our youth programs and all of the other programs that are currently happening. I mean Alpha is one of the most successful uh, programs in in this parish across all of Australia. Right. So that is just something that we can sort of reflect on and be very proud of. Right. So and then if you look at you know the youth um, groups that we have, so your Antioch and so on. And again, if you look at this diocese, That is the most – the highlight of um, youth programs, right? It's one that's been very sustainable. So these are the strengths, and that doesn't happen um, unless people are willing to come together and they see a common ground. And I think, you know, we all believe that, that that cohesiveness that we build as a parish and the community spirit is very strong, right? So, yeah, that that those are the things that I would say is strengths.
5: Wow. Well, thank you very much, Joan, for coming in today.
6: <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me, Jack. It's been great to be here. So thank you again.
5: Thank you.
1: So that's all for this week's segment of The Grace Podcast. Thanks once again for tuning in. And whether or not you find a four-leaf clover or indeed a five-leaf clover for that matter, we wish you all a little bit of St. Patrick's luck this Lent. Now we'll end this podcast with a prayer from the one and only Deacon Sam, sharing a prayer from his 30-day retreat. Over to you.
3: Uh, this next prayer is taken from uh, the 30-day retreat. It's a very famous prayer called the Sushape, which is a Latin word meaning to receive. And essentially it is giving yourself over completely to God, that he may take control of your life and that you may basically be able to do his will. I think it's a, it's a beautiful prayer, so I'll share that with you now. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and possess. Thou hast given all to me. To thee, O Lord, I return it. All is thine. Dispose of it wholly according to thy will. Give me thy love and thy grace, for this is sufficient for me. Amen.